Here we are recording the first part of our eight-part series, What is the Gospel? Today's part is, Who is God? And we have with us Mark Spence, our VP of Outreach, Emails Wayne, also known as Easy, our president, and uh, the faithful founder, visionary, fearless leader, New Zealander, Ray Comfort. Hello, I'm Ray. <laughs> we got the Three Stooges <laughs> orchestrated by Oscar. This is going to be right. interesting. All righty. So today's topic is who is God? And uh, the first question we have is why is it that we are asking who is God versus what is God? Mm. You know, let me just say at the outset how excited I am that we are talking about God I'm sure you guys have read Knowing God by Packer, right? It's a classic. Sure. And uh, I remember years ago <laughs> cracking it open and, and reading this by Spurgeon. It says, It has been said by someone that the proper study of mankind is man. I will not oppose the idea, but I believe it is equally true that the proper study of God's elect is God. The proper study of a Christian is the Godhead, the highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy, which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom he calls his father. Would you lose your sorrow? Would you drown your cares? Then go plunge yourself in the Godhead's deepest sea, be lost in his immensity, and you shall come forth as from a couch of rest refreshed and invigorated. I know nothing which can so comfort the soul, so calm the swelling billows of sorrow and grief, so speak peace to the winds of trial as a devout musing upon the subject of the Godhead. Well, was, thank oh, you for starting yeah. with Spurgeon. <laughs> right. yeah, we can only go downhill from there. <laughs> I wanted to doom us from the start. But no, what blew my mind was when I read he was 20 years old oh, wow. when he said that in a sermon. Wow. And, uh, Prince of yeah. Preachers. Only easy can make Spurgeon sound like a spoken word, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Choice. A little bit of rhyme to it. Yeah. So what was the question? The question is, again, uh, why is it that we're asking who is God versus what is God? Mm-hmm. You know, the, the question, who is God, is so much better than, than what is God. You know, who is God refers to a person. It's personable. We can begin to get, to get into some personal attributes of God. Now, what is God is a decent question, but when you begin to tear it apart, it forms a very informal, a very standoffish position of who God is. You can begin to answer it, well, God is light. Uh, God is a rock. Mm. And you begin to, well, okay, I, I can't really relate to a rock. I can't really relate to light, if you would. But when you begin to talk about how God is the creator and God is holy and God is loving, mm-hmm. then we begin to see, no, God cares. Mm-hmm. This God who created mankind, created man in his image, he cares about me. My name and my face is on his mouth and in his mind, if you would. So who is God? is a lot better than what is God, though it's not far off. So we begin to break down from the base level, who is God, and then we have a starting point. Right. And I, I think the what question lends itself to idolatry, which yes. is obviously prevalent in our culture today. Mm-hmm. I mean, from the pantheistic perspective, yeah, what is God? God is a tree. God is a rock. God is me. Uh, but mm. we're speaking of a distinct and definite and real and historic uh, God, absolutely. And, and I was thinking, yeah, he sorry, is. Is he, <clears throat> might you finish that sentence? No, I'm done. <laughs> You're done? Yes. Um, I was thinking of, of Gideon where uh, he was uh, told by God to go and 
destroy his father's idols. Mm. And it's kind of what we have to do when we come to Christ, that we have to destroy our father's idols. In a sense, we've inherited an idolatrous understanding of God's character and nature. I was, um, for those who don't know, California has great weather. Mm. Um, actually, <laughs> we know. we've just finished a five-year drought, and, and when it rains, seriously, Sue and I ran outside to, <laughs> to look at the rain. And you run in puddles. Yeah, I do. I step in puddles deliberately because someone once said, you know, you get old when you go around puddles instead of through them. So I stomped through them out of repose. Wearing a suit. I've seen you wearing a suit. Yeah. Walk it doesn't matter what he's wearing, who's around him. Or how, jump, jump, jump. Or, yep, how, yep. or how deep it is. Sometimes I just disappear. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, uh, I, was, I was listening to the rain the other night um, when I was up praying, and I was thinking how God is familiar with every drop of rain, and it kind of sounds like a nice little song you teach kids wow. at a Sunday school. Mm-hmm. God's familiar with every drop of rain. But I was thinking about how when that rain has come through the heavens and, and that shape that it's in with that, that film holding it, the shape that's in, God's familiar not only with that drop of rain but with every atom yeah. that holds it yeah. together. And then you think, well, I wonder how many drops formed a rainstorm. I wonder how many drops of rain have fallen since the beginning of creation. God is familiar with every single drop and its makeup of its atoms, how it's put together. And, and every ray that's exploded from the face of the sun and come 93 million miles, 186,000 miles per second, not just to the earth, but throughout all the universe because the, 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 the sun is round. God's familiar with every, wow. every photon that's in every ray because he made it. Thoughts like that put me in awe. You know, if you ever ask me how I am, I should say I'm awful. Because we should all be full of awe <laughs> continually at the greatness of God. Thinking about creation, nature, what God is and what he's done uh, creates in you a fear of the Lord that smashes those idols. Mm, yeah. And it's one thing we, we need to do more. I, I go into worship just collecting eggs from our chickens. Mm. Seriously, I think, how could this be? You know, we threw them trash last night, and I've got this hygienically sealed package that I'm going to eat. Right. And so all around us, we see the genius of God's creative hand. So who is God? He's the creator of the Amen. universe. You know, I, I love, uh, I, I read a quote by Neil deGrasse Tyson one time when he was talking about, he was asked the question, how many stars are out there? Mm-hmm. And his response was, there are more stars out there than there are words and noises that have ever been uttered by mankind. And all of history. And all of history. So uh, put that into perspective that God has all of these stars named. He knows them all by name. He spans them out by the palm of his hand. This is how big our God is. And that's including women. And women say twice as much as men (laughs) (laughs) because men need to be told things twice. Great comfort, getting in trouble. There we go. Here we go. I qualified it. Men need to be told things twice. That's why women have to say it twice. So they they go into detail. You know, let me say this also before we move on. Uh, I'm just so so excited about this subject because if we don't begin with God, we're going to end up in the wrong place, no matter which direction we're going in, what subject or topic we're dealing with. But I often marvel at the the hubris and the arrogance of man and saying, one day I'm going to stand in front of God. I'm going to give him a piece of my mind. And even as we're talking about the Lord, and we've barely touched on who he is and his greatness, but the thought of a minuscule being that is microscopic. I mean, you think about it. If you travel at the speed of light, 186,000 miles per second through space, in a second and a half, you'd reach the moon. In nine minutes at that speed, you'd reach the sun, 93 million miles away. In four years, you'd be at Alpha Centauri, which is a star closest to our solar system. But if you started at one end of our galaxy, the Milky Way, and traveled all the way across to the other end of it at 186,000 miles per second, nonstop, it would take you 100,000 years to complete your journey. 
There's over 100 billion galaxies with over 100 billion stars in each galaxy. The Bible says about God that he spans the universe with his hand, that heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain him. And any bitty little beings are going to give him a piece of their mind. What a terrifying thought that is when you think of that reality on the day of judgment. Well, anyone who wants to give God a piece of their mind can't afford it. (laughs) (laughs) Not much to give. I'm often asked when I'm at the universities, well, which God is it that we need to believe in? I said, well, the capital G one, of course. Mm. Capital G, God, the creator of the heavens and the earth. Well, they say, well, which one is that? I said, I I answered you. The creator (laughs) of the heavens and the earth. There's only one God who Mm -hmm. has created the heavens and the earth. And that's once it's done, no one else to do it again is that point. (laughs) And that's a good transition. We're already kind of headed there. Uh, What does it mean that we we, uh, refer to God as the Alpha and Omega? What is that? What does that look like? What does that mean? I think it's anthropomorphic. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) And scene. (laughs) Well, obviously, Alpha and Omega are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. And uh, it's indicative of kind of the the whole and sum total of something in particular. The beginning, the end, the all-inclusive nature of something. And obviously, in the Old Testament, the Father is referred to as the Alpha and the Omega. Christ, in Revelation, referred to himself as the Alpha and the Omega. And so it would be indicative of him being prime. It would, it would also be indicative of eternality. He, he's always been. He's the beginning. He's the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is no beginning. There is no end to him, in a sense. So that's, that's what I mean by anthropomorphic, that it's, it, it, God's scaled it down for our tiny brains to understand. There's no beginning and no end, but if there was, he'd be there at both ends. Right. Billy Sunday uh, once said, there are 256 names given in the Bible for the Lord Jesus Christ. And I suppose this was because he was infinitely beyond all that any one name could express. So he has always existed and he always will exist. How do we know this? Because God has given us a written word. And inside of his written word, it says, from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. That's great. So here's a question for you. Is knowledge finite or infinite? I'm waiting for the trick question. I no, it's not a trick question. So many different directions. It's a different, it's just, what do you think, Mark? Is, is knowledge infinite or is there an end to knowledge? Because it, there must be an end to knowledge. If God is omniscient, he's all-knowing, yes. so he knows all things. Therefore, knowledge must be finite. Okay. These, these sort of thoughts hurt my brain. I mean, the eternality of God hurts my brain. Sure. Uh, Even time, when I think of an existence without time, that hurts me. And and I end up just shutting my mouth. I think worship is saying nothing. Often I just bow and worship because I, no song, no words of praise, no uh, prayer is going to come anywhere near what I'm feeling in my spirit. Yeah. Yeah. I would say, if you don't mind me adding to that, I would say uh, knowledge is probably uh, finite to God yet infinite, I'm sorry, yeah, infinite to us. Uh, this side of eternity, we will never know all things. And on the other side of eternity, I knew that. we will constantly be knowing more about who he is. Mm. Yeah. I mentioned earlier about how the Old Testament refers to the Father as the Alpha and the Omega. Uh, I, the Lord, am the first, and with the last, I am he. That's Isaiah 41.4. Or I am the first and I am the last, and beside me there is no God. Isaiah 44, six. Um, and I am he, I am the first, I am also the last, Isaiah 48, 12. I mean, again and again, he's referred to as that. And then you think of the echoes of that uh, in the New Testament. You think of Jesus in Revelation twenty two thirteen, saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. 
I mean, th- there's no mistaking what he's declaring there. And even his, his Alpha and Omega status in terms uh, of our faith, uh, you think of uh, what it says in Hebrews, that he is the author and the finisher of our faith in Hebrews 12 too. Mm-hmm. And so there's so, so many ramifications to that title, Alpha and Omega, in terms of the wholeness of Christ and who he is in every aspect of our lives. Beautiful. You know, John Piper said, we might marvel that God is infinite, eternal, and unchanging in his justice, wisdom, power, goodness, and truth. But when you pause to think that he never chose to be this way, mm-hmm. nor did anyone else choose to make him this way, it staggers the mind. Yeah. Wow. I love it. That's great. <laughs> you know, one thing that took my breath away, which a lot of people would be pleased about, especially in the mornings, um, was the, the, the immensity of God. When you get a a grip in your mind for a split second that he dwells everywhere, knows all things, can do all things, and you think, I just can't hardly believe this is just such a big thought. And you think he became one person. God was manifest in the flesh. Mm. He spoke words of life and and commended his love toward us. And while we yet sinners, Christ died for us and defeated our greatest enemy, which is death. You know, I'm so thrilled the Bible calls uh, death an enemy Mm. because it means it can be defeated. You know, it's not just something... uh, an evolutionary process we all have to put up with. There's, there's no fittest to survive. Sorry, nothing survives. It's ridiculous. <laughs> but we've got an enemy that's been defeated through the cross where God became a human being and the Savior. Amen. That's great, guys. Thank you. Um, some of the things that we've been talking about, uh, others would use those terminologies to explain a false God. Uh, but now we're coming across a, a subject that is exclusive to the one true God. It's exclusive in the sense that only Christians uh, have this discussion, use this terminology, and that is the Trinity. Uh, So I want to open that up to us. First, uh, it's always dangerous to ask someone to summarize what the Trinity is, but perhaps we can talk a little bit about the Trinity and, and why it's so important to the gospel. Well, I fall back on the Westminster Confession of 1646. Let me quote it for you. It's a good question. In the unity of the Godhead, there be three persons of one substance, power and eternity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father, the Holy Spirit eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son. And I'm pleased they did that because it's a very hard thing to kind of summarize and Mm. to express. But having said that, uh, theology is the essence of our, our faith, but I really come up against it when I say really, R-A-R-E-L-Y, uh, when it comes to evangelism. No one really comes up and says, okay, explain the Trinity to me. Right. You know, you know every analogy uh, that you can think of, every analogy that you can think of, every comparison that you can begin to do to describe the Trinity, well, God is like water and ice, you have to be careful Right. Because every analogy that is out there, James White has referred to every story is actually a direct relation to some sort of a heresy that is out there. Wow. So I think the definition that you gave, Ray, just now is actually the best. Right. I'm also a little trepid to even move forward in this area, lest yep. uh, one of you, especially easy, comes up with an analogy. Well, the three milk and eggs. No, I have to say that Easy actually got on the Trinity. I remember probably 20 years ago. Oh, it was like a three, four-part series on the yeah. Trinity that I was just floored listening to you teach it. Um, I don't even know if you remember teaching that. Yeah, I definitely, I definitely do. And, you know, I can't emphasize how important it is that we not check our minds at the door when it comes to understanding the nature of God. 
And it's a difficult subject, but I think what we're seeing in the church today is this sort of anti-intellectualism where it's almost as if though it's unspiritual to get really deep into the truths of God. And so nothing that God has revealed should be viewed as insignificant. And so, you know, I, I love what, uh, what John Stott said. He said, the current mood cultivated in some Christian groups of anti-intellectualism is not true piety at all, but part of the fashion of the world and therefore a form of worldliness. To denigrate the mind is to undermine foundational Christian doctrines. Has God created us rational beings and shall we deny our humanity, which he has given us? Has God spoken to us and shall we not listen to his words? Has God renewed our mind through Christ and shall we not think with it? Is God going to judge us by his word and shall we not be wise and build our house upon this rock oh i love that and so we know when it comes to the trinity typically people are intimidated mm-hmm. well i don't know you know i just love god and i worship god and but the question is is who is god right we go back to our foundational question who is god who has he revealed himself uh, to be in scripture and so we get intimidated by the Trinity, but I, I would like to do this and then we can kind of flesh it out. But I want to take us to what's believed to be kind of the foundational, uh, thorough definition of the Trinity. And this was something that was put together by, um, you know, the early church. It's often attributed to uh, Athanasius, uh, who was one of the early church fathers. Um, and so it's called the Athanasian Creed. And, and it goes like this. The universal Christian faith is this that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance or essence. For there is one person of the Father, another of the Son, and another of the Holy Ghost. But the Godhead of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost is all one, the glory equal, the majesty co-eternal, such as the Father is, such as the Son, and such as the Holy Spirit. The Father uncreated, the Son uncreated, and the Holy Ghost uncreated. The Father unlimited, the Son unlimited, and the Holy Ghost unlimited or infinite the Father eternal, the Son eternal, and the Holy Ghost eternal. And yet they are not three eternals, but one eternal. As also there are not three uncreated, nor three infinites, but one uncreated and one infinite. So likewise, the Father is almighty, the Son almighty, and the Holy Ghost almighty. And yet there are not three almighties, but one almighty. So the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Ghost is God. And yet there are not three gods, but one God. So likewise, the Father is Lord, the Son is Lord, and the Holy Ghost is Lord. And yet there are not three, but one Lord. For like as we are compelled by the Christian verity to acknowledge every person by himself to be God and Lord, so are we forbidden by the universal Christian faith to say there are three gods or three lords. The Father is made of none, neither created nor begotten. The Son is of the Father alone, not made nor created, but begotten. The Holy Ghost is of the Father and of the Son, neither made nor created nor begotten, but proceeding. So there is one Father, not three fathers, one Son, not three sons, one Holy Ghost, not three Holy Ghosts. And in this Trinity, none is a four or after another, none is greater or less than another. There is nothing before, after, nothing greater or less, but the whole three persons are co-eternal and co-equal. So that in all things, as aforesaid, the unity in Trinity and Trinity is unity is to be worshipped. And, you know, it goes on from there. But I know that that's involved, but there's that emphasis again and again and again, because if you start... Like Mark mentioned earlier, going by these different analogies and illustrations, you end up in the wrong place. You end up in tritheism, that there are three gods. Or you end up in modalism. There's, you know, one person, but he wears three different masks you know, at different times. Now he's a father, now he's a son, now he's a Holy Spirit. So we have to understand that within the Trinity, there are, there's one God, eternally existent, manifested in three distinct yeah. persons, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, co-equal, co-eternal. 
and you know, consistent. You're, you're sort of touching on it, which is to understand or to, to, to start to have a conversation about the Trinity, you're really not having a conversation about one doctrine, but a plethora of doctrines. Right. You're talking about the incarnation and who is Christ. You're talking about the Alpha and Omega of our Father and Creator. Uh, you know, there's, there's not one doctrine in Scripture that isn't um, informed by the fact that God is a Trinitarian God. Right. It's multifaceted for yeah. sure. You know, I had uh, some Jehovah's Witnesses come to my door and they wanted to share with me the truth of the gospel and the truth about God. And they wanted to hand me a pamphlet, What is the Trinity? And I said, you know, I've read that. In fact, I've read uh, how a lot of that is actually taken out of context. Would, would you care to know where the errors are found? And they said, you know what, we're, we're just going to leave you alone on your Saturday and we're going to go on to the next house. And I said, whoa, 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 whoa wait a minute. Why would you do that? And they said, well, it's obvious you have truth and we want to pass uh, the truth on to other people. And I said, but you don't believe that. You do not believe that I have the truth. They said, you know what, we're not going to argue. We're going to go our way. Well, I have... Uh, inside my Bible, a little insert of 182 verses that authenticate through attributes and characteristics of Jesus Christ being God. He's the creator. He's uh, everywhere at once. He's eternal. He's the king. He's the forgiver of sins. He's our hope. He's our life. He's light. It just goes on and on. And I said, does that concern you? I said, you know what? Goodbye. Well, they went to leave. And when they went to leave, they went up to my next door neighbor. And as they went up to my next door neighbor, they knocked on the door Bonnie, she comes out, she answers the door, and I go, hi, Bonnie, they're going to lie to you right here, and I'm just going to go ahead and clean up the mess when they're done. (laughs) Bonnie says, excuse me? And they just turned around and walked away. I followed them. I said, listen, I'm kind of the gatekeeper inside my neighborhood, and if you're going to go up to my neighbor's houses, I'm going to be there with you because I do not uh, appreciate you spreading lies amongst the people. I go, you won't even bear to sit down with me and to kind of dissect this and to see what you believe is wrong. I believe it to be wrong. Let's sit down and discuss this. Mm. They decided to leave. But before they did, one guy came up to me, one of their groups. It was like I was surrounded by all these Jehovah's Witnesses. And and I said, listen, um, you you guys have a big problem here. And I I went on to explain it. And the guy said, listen, tell you what, I will sit down and I will discuss this with you at another time. And I said, I doubt that. I doubt that you will. In fact, I believe that you're going to mark my house and you'll never come back. And he said, no, I'll sit down. I'll sit down and we can discuss this whole idea of the Trinity. And I said, I doubt that you'll come back, but I'll be here. And he never came back. He never came back to discuss this. Because a lot of times we have to be careful. Somebody once said, be careful with the questions that you ask because there are answers. Yeah, amen. Yeah, one of the major uh, foundations is Jesus said, I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Yeah. And yet you interpret Scripture with Scripture, but we see Jesus made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. He, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. So uh, it's such a tragedy. They've got their own version of the Bible, and they won't take anybody's literature. Uh, my neighbors are Jehovah's Witnesses. When you said they went to your next door neighbor, I was expecting you to say, I jump the fence and open the neighbor's door to greet them. All <laughs> <laughs> right. the way down the street. But uh, God bless you, Mark, for caring about your neighbors. Yeah. yeah. Oh, sorry. No, I was ahead. scared. I'll be honest with you. I was really nervous, but. Yeah. Well, you know, I was going to say that in summation, the bottom line is that Scripture undoubtedly teaches and indisputably teaches that there is one God. I, I mean, I referenced some of the verses already in Isaiah. There's right. no God for me, before me, nor will there be after. After me, great Shema, right? Uh, Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There's no question about the the fact that there is only one true eternal God. But then in Scripture, we see that there are three distinct persons that are called God. Each, mm-hmm. each 
being called by that title. Uh, you know, whether it's obviously the fathers referred to as God. You look in Acts, uh, you know, chapter five with Ananias and Sapphira, and Peter says, you know, why have you lied to the Holy Spirit? And then he goes on to say, you have not lied to men, but to God. Right. And we see the personality of the Holy Spirit that he gives, gives to whom he wills, that he, he tells, you know, the apostles, go here, don't go here, that, you know, he can be grieved. He's a person. There's, there's a personality of the Holy Spirit. And of course, Christ, right? John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God, not a God, as Jehovah's Witnesses mm-hmm. misinterpret it, but he's referred to as God. Thomas falls before him in John 20, says, my Lord and my God, mm-hmm. right? And in and, and the Gospel of John as well, Jesus says that all should honor the Son even as they honor the Father. Who do we honor the Father as? As Jehovah, right? As Yahweh, is the one and only true God. And so, so that's what's behind the doctrine of the Trinity. It's a systematic uh, truth that, that we come to conclude uh, on the basis of Scripture and what the whole of Scripture says about God and who He is. Hmm. When the Pharisees uh, came with their little um, seven brides for seven uh, husbands, whatever it is, that Disney film, where they gave that analogy, this woman had these husbands, that whose, whose wife uh, shall she be in heaven? Right. Jesus said, you do greatly err, uh, neither knowing the Scriptures nor the power of God. Mm-hmm. So you've got that, if you're ignorant of the Scriptures and you're idolatrous, you, you're just not going to get anywhere with the things right. of God. So. Yeah. Scriptures is God's revelation of his character and nature. Very clear. And we would, it would do us wise to kind of stay within the realm of Scripture right. when we begin to try to describe the Trinity. It's like, how do you describe a sunset to somebody born blind? How do you describe a beautiful symphony to somebody who has uh, no ears or is deaf, right? Or how do you describe, uh, uh, I mean, fill in the blank, right. right? To somebody who doesn't have the ability to see, we have to stay within the realm of Scripture. And the reason why is because the Scripture is the power of God onto salvation. It is living, it is powerful, and it will remain to the flower right. of the field. Yeah, exactly. no, you're absolutely right. I mean, not using the sun to describe the Trinity, but using the sun to explain how do you describe it to a blind man, you right. know, the warmth and radiance that it does, or, or you look out onto the earth and what part of the sun doesn't touch it, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah we can and, go on. And, and we could go on and on. We don't have time here, but uh, but let me just encourage those that are listening to just do a thorough study, not not just on the shared attributes of God between the three persons within the triune Godhead, but even the shared titles yes. uh, beyond just God, but shared titles like Alpha and Omega, which right. we already touched on, but, but it goes on and on from there. And I know, Mark, you've dealt with that a lot. And, yeah, and we, in fact, we deal with it inside of our... Uh, so because the School of Biblical Evangelism inside there, there there's a tremendous chapter dealing with the Trinity. And then the following chapter, uh, chapter 49, it deals with the deity of Christ going through all the attributes. And it deals with those 182 verses that I talk about. You know, Because one of the things that I'll say to a Jehovah's Witness, very love and respectful, if I'm going to go through the gospel, that's the power of God. But if I'm going to tickle the intellect, this is where I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it in the realm of describe God to me if you would. Right. Please, give me an attribute of God that's just, uh, given only to Jehovah and not to Jesus. Hmm. And then they begin to say, well, uh, Jehovah is the creator. He's the forgiver. Right. He, and it doesn't matter what they say. I, and I tell them, what would it mean to you if for every attribute you give me, I'm going to give you at least two scriptures where Jesus fulfills that role. That is found inside of yeah. the School of Biblical Evangelism, inside awesome. the textbook and online. It's beautiful. Yeah, and, and again, evidence that, that there's misunderstandings of the Trinity 
are demonstrated by things that they'll challenge Christians with, like, uh, well, wait a minute, when Jesus was on the cross, if he's God, who is he praying to, right? right? That's modalism. That, that would be the thought that it's the same person wearing different masks. But no, he, he's a distinct person, right. but he's a part of the same eternal Godhead. He's yes. God the Son speaking to God the Father. Yeah, well, as you mentioned, easy, we can certainly spend uh, the rest of our time on that, but uh, we're going to move on for the sake of time. We have eternity, you know. We do. We'll discuss this <laughs> further later. Uh, let's ask this question. What does it mean? Because we've all been using this word a little bit here and there. What does it mean that God is revelatory? Uh, and of course, we're talking about the way he reveals himself. Uh, first off, in what ways does he reveal himself to us? How does he make himself known? Uh, and why is it important to be able to identify those areas? Well, the only way we can know certain things about God is through his mercy in his revelatory word. This is the only way. Mm -hmm. You can go sit inside of a closet and say, God, reveal yourself to me, and then you're going to be left with all these thoughts and feelings. We go to his word. 66 books written over a period of almost 1,500 years on a few different continents with 40 different authors from different occupational backgrounds with one central main theme to reveal who God is to mankind. Mm -hmm. This is how we know. Yeah. And what standard do we use when people come up with different ideas about God? And I often love to ask people this question when they say, well, God is like this or God is like that. And I ask them, what's your standard of authority? And it typically goes back to, well, that's what I feel. That's what I think. So I thank God that he's given us his divine revelation that describes to us who he is. Ray, I know that to you, God's word is so important that you've read it every day without fail for, I think, 200 years. (laughs) 45. Or 45 years. Wow. Thank you, easy. Thuzla. <laughs> yeah, um, John 14, 21. He that has my commandments and keeps them here does it loves me. He that loves me will be loved of my Father. I too will love him and will reveal myself to him. Um, I know it's subjective. Our testimony is a subjective, but I was made a new creature overnight. God opened the eyes of my understanding. I was, a, I was blind, but now I see. New heart, new desires, a peace that passes all understanding. Driving my car, I always had music playing. Mm. The day after I became a Christian, I turned it off. I didn't need it. I was there. I didn't need anything to stir me up. Uh, I used to dangle my feet as shark bait and to try and find joy in surfing, mm. to enjoy my surfing. And uh, I didn't need it. I didn't need to try and prove anything. And so it's very difficult to explain what it is to become a new creature. But it's, I like to say the first time I was born, it was kind of radical. I didn't exist. Then I did. Second time I was born, just as radical. Brand new creature. And uh, that's what everybody needs. Mm. That's, what we're trying to, that's what we're trying to do. That's our agenda, to bring people to the foot of the cross, to, to be born again and uh, find yeah. peace with God. And, you know, I love what Hebrews uh, describes to us is the ultimate revelation of God. Uh, this is Hebrews 1. It says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son. And... Christ is the ultimate revelation of God. Christ is the Amen. ultimate exclamation point of God Almighty uh, on his promise of redemption to mankind. And so it's important to remember that. So yeah, God reveals himself in various ways, but ultimately the, the authoritative standard of revelation is his word mm-hmm. and is the person of his son who is the word. Yeah, I love what you just said. I mean, he does, he reveals himself in nature. You know, the heavens declare the glory of God. 
He reveals himself through his people when we speak the truth, which is what we find in scripture, not in I feel this way, Mm -hmm. rather through the Holy Spirit in scripture, he reveals himself. And there comes the value and importance of evangelism. He's revealing himself through us when we, when we proclaim the gospel. Uh, and uh, most fully, he reveals himself in Jesus Christ and then through the Holy Spirit. You know, I like when Jesus uh, confronted Peter over at Caesarea by the sea, and all these people have these opinions on who Jesus is. And then Jesus looks over at Peter and he says, but who do you, who do you say that I am? He says, I believe you are the Christ, the son of the living God. But then the next words that Jesus said are so profound to us as we carry out our evangelistic endeavors. It was, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father, which is in heaven. And a lot of times we get so caught up in trying to defend the Christian faith thinking I can win them over through my cute and quaint analogies and illustrations and experiences. And we get into this argument and we stay away from the gospel. So it is so paramount that we stick with, hey, listen, it's real simple. God has revealed himself to you. You know that God exists, Revelation 1, 19 to 21. You know that God exists. Let me give you some special revelation here on who this God is that we're talking about. We talk about it briefly. We allow God to do his work. The Father will reveal as he sees fit, you know, and then we get right into uh, what needs to be said after that. Uh, I think it's especially valuable in the kind of culture that we live in today. You know, we live in this post-Judeo-Christian modern secular culture in which truth is subjective, and here is God being revelatory, giving us a pillar of truth. In the wave of confusion, we can grab a hold of that. We know that it is true because he has revealed himself to us and he is absolute and he is unchanging. Uh, and it's really the only way in which we can grab on to any type of truth. I know, Mark, you love talking about that uh, on college campuses, right? Absolutely. You know, somebody once said, you need to be careful. Um, well, each person needs to determine for himself how much truth he can handle. The truth will set you free. But Tom Waite said, yeah, but not until it's had its way with us. And we have to allow the truth of God's word to have its way with inside mm-hmm. of us. And, you know, you think about the grace of God in giving us his inspired and errant and fallible word. I often look around at the world and I see the decisions people make trying to figure out how to raise children, trying to figure out how to deal with finances, how to think uh, in terms of our origins and how to act Uh, in regards to that. And it's like, what a tragedy that they don't have the wisdom of God revealed. They have it, it's under their nose, but they don't even realize it. And so it's such a blessing that we can build our rock upon the truth of God. And I look back and I thank God uh, that he saved me before I got married, before I had kids, Mm -hmm. (laughs) because you think of all the tragedies that result from there. And uh, I thank God that he's revealed truth in his word that guides our lives. Just Rachel is also thankful. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Just watch yeah. the news tonight to see the tragedy and look at just type in suicides among youth, youth teenagers and, and how um, we're forsaken God's way and we're reaping the fruit of, of our own yeah. rebellion. We're like right. sheep without a shepherd and, Absolutely. and how we need to have a, 
uh, clarion call, uh, to lift up our voices like a trumpet, show this people yeah. their transgressions. We are, we're in the midst of a truth crisis. And yeah. here is God revealing himself as the truth teller mm-hmm. of the one that's absolute and unchanging. You know, we ought to grab a hold of that as a culture, as a society. That's what we pray for. That's why, you know, we're out on the streets every day is for that exact thing. Let's uh, shift gears a little bit. Um, we've been using, in, in answering all of these questions, we've been throwing out there these various types of attributes of God. Uh, and often when you start talking about attributes, they are in two different categories. There are the communicable attributes of God, and they are, there are the incommunicable attributes of God. Explain um, what you mean by that. I'm going to have you explain what we mean by that. One <laughs> of you explain. It's that really, it's th- those that can be known and those that can't be known are understood, right? Easy, go ahead. Yeah, and, and it also carries with it the thought of those that God shares with his creatures and those that yes. he doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. So his communicable uh, attributes uh, would uh, involve things like you know his, his goodness or his love mm-hmm. or uh, his justice, knowledge, rationality, mercy, speech, truthfulness, wisdom. I mean, we've been created in the image of God. And so uh, we, we possess certain attributes that God possesses, but we have to remember there's a distinction. It's not always on the same level, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have to be careful of that because, uh, for example, let's say jealousy, right? Yeah. And often people, I've heard Oprah Winfrey say that that's when she kind of turned on the church because she heard them say that God is a jealous God. Mm. I just wish I could have sat down with her at that moment, that juncture in her life and explained to her that God is different than man. It's not jealousy in the same way that we would experience in terms of sinful jealousy. So, but, but God's incommunicable attributes are those that he possesses solely, uh, God's holiness, God's uh, immutability that he doesn't change, God's uh, infinite nature, his omnipotence, his omnipresence, his omniscience, all of these things are things that God solely possesses and are incommunicable. Man doesn't have them. Right. Yeah. They begin to blow the mind when you begin to try to really dissect it. Right. God is altogether other, altogether different. In fact, mm-hmm. somebody once said, the only box that God will fit in is the one that says other. Mm. Yeah. Amen. You know, a proud heart can't receive what you're saying, especially about jealousy, they'll jump onto it. But God is angry. He has hatred, he has uh, uh, jealousy, and all these are in righteousness. Yeah, I receive Uh, that. Yeah, thank you. You know, I I love that you brought up jealousy. It's something that I can relate to um, having been an atheist before. It was one of those words that I would throw at Christians all the time. Uh, And unfortunately, I didn't realize the value and importance of God being jealous. Like you alluded to, God is not jealous in the same way that an angry, insecure man is jealous over his spouse or a woman is jealous over her husband. Uh, God is jealous in the sense that he demands our praise. So the, the, the thing comes up as, you know, as if God was a megalomaniac um, who just wants our attention. Um, but it's important to realize that he demands our praise because he knows that that's what we're made to do. Because he knows that that will bring us the most amount of joy. Uh, so, you know, I, I've heard you, you mentioned John Piper earlier. I've heard Piper talk about seeing the Grand Canyon versus looking at yourself in the mirror. No one looks at themselves in the mirror and are struck with awe, yeah. you know? Except easy. Wow. Except easy. <laughs> Yet, when guess. you see the Grand Canyon for the first time, when your toes are on the edge of that cliff and you're staring at this thing that is so much big, bigger than you, so much more massive than you, 
uh, you are struck with awe. Uh, and whether you realize it or not, you are struck with a sense of praise. Yes. So it's this sign that we are made to yes. praise. We are made to worship so that God's jealousy is him drawing our praise and worship to him uh, rather than just him being filled. His jealousy is about us being filled yes. with praise and worship. Absolutely. Please tell me you didn't stand with your toes on the edge of the Grand Canyon. <laughs> you know, and this is why, you know, each one of us have been designed within our DNA to stand in awe of that which is greater than ourselves. And this is why we get so excited to watch sporting events or to meet celebrities, right? Because this they are bigger than life, if you would. And somebody once said, if you've never seen and experienced the glory of God, well, then you are going to be entertained with shadows, mirages, streetlights, and fireworks when you've been designed to stand in awe of the sun. Mm. Yeah, and you know, those that speak about God being a megalomaniac really are... Uh, blinded at the moment that they say that to the fact that they are derived beings, that they are the byproduct of God's creation, and there is nothing before him, that he is, period, and that our greatest good is to bring him the greatest amount of glory. And I've instilled that in our children, our family vision statement that I unveiled years ago that I've memorized and all our kids that are of age have memorized is to gladly and passionately glorify God in every thought, affection, word, and deed while constantly enjoying him as our greatest pleasure and most precious treasure. Mm. I've memorized that. My wife has. Uh, our kids who are of age have memorized it because there's nothing more important than recognizing that we are made by God and for God. And the greatest danger for us lowly created creatures is to veer from living to his glory in all things. Mm. You know, those that mock the thought of uh, God commanding worship um, are guilty of inordinate affection. It's Romans 1. They worship the creature rather than the creator. And you hear people like Richard Dawkins lavishing praise and glory on nature. They worship the painting and the painter stands beside it and they spit on him. And it's horrific, especially when we become a Christian. I mean, worshiping God, it comes as naturally as singing birds in the morning. It's just just what we're made for. So here we are talking about these various things about God, who God is, the Trinity, the revelatory God, communicable, incommunicable God. Uh, And over the next couple of sessions, we're going to be exploring other aspects of the gospel. Why is it so important to really hone in, drill down into these details? Why does it matter specifically to our evangelism? How does it affect us in that way? If I may answer that before the guys do, I think through the fear of the Lord, men depart from evil. And while we have uh, an understanding that's dark and alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that's in us, we're not going to have any fear of God. Fear of God is a, probably there's no more despised doctrine in America today or throughout the world today than the fear of God. And yet, to say America was a God-fearing nation back in the 1950s means that people didn't murder each other. They didn't rape. You could leave your doors unlocked because they had this, howbeit, knowledge of God. They, many of them not even saved, but they still had a, a respect for the Ten Commandments and for God and with God and country. And there wasn't so much atheism and idolatry around. So... Um, it, it matters greatly that we um, reveal the scriptural understanding of what God is so that Ben will get a, a fear of God and cause them to depart from sin. And the way to do that is do what Moses did when he came down upon Israel when they were involved in idolatry through the commandments of their feet. And that's what we need to do. It's when we understand those commandments uh, and what God requires in his holiness that it puts a natural fear within us. That was my big revelation the night I was saved is that he sees my thought life. Mm. You know, I just thought he was like the guy reaching out to touch Adam with his finger. And yet that night that I understood that, I just departed from sin right. because of that understanding. 
you know, I would say in an ultimate sense, the reason why it's important to understand who God is in evangelism is because you really can't make a distinction between God and the gospel. Hmm. The, the gospel is a revelation of the nature and the character and the attributes of God. It's part and parcel with his justice. It's a part and parcel with his judgment, with his wrath, with his love, with his mercy, with his grace. So if you have the wrong God, you have the wrong gospel. And we know what Galatians 1 says. If anyone preaches any gospel, uh, contrary to that which we've preached to you or that which you've received, let him be accursed, anathema. Hmm. And so we need to make sure that we are representing the true and living God because Scripture tells us we're ambassadors of Christ. So we need to be sure that we know who he is. And if we don't, we're, we are inevitably going to begin to distort that gospel. We are making God known in his greatness. We're lifting up God in his nature and his character and his person. And so we have to know who he is. Yeah. Man, if you have the wrong God, you have the wrong gospel. That's right. And the gospel reveals the nature of God. For therein we see the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. Christ on the cross reveals the love of God and the righteousness and wrath of God all in one. Mm-hmm. That's great. Uh, before I close this out, guys, do we have any final thoughts on this? You mean once our last words? Final thoughts, <laughs> last words, <laughs> final meal. <laughs> you know, in uh, John 14 to John 17, we have uh, Jesus telling the apostles to ask of the Father for different reasons. Ask so that your joy is complete. Ask uh, so that they will know in a, on and on. But I find it very interesting in John 17, verse 3. It's as if Jesus takes his own advice and gives an example to uh, the apostles, those around him, saying, listen, and, and thinking of all the things that Jesus could have asked the Father, in this moment in time, he says, I pray that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So Jesus summed up everything that he wanted to do and that his creation, his, uh, that he, these people whom he has made, that they would just simply know God. Mm-hmm. And that's what we do in evangelism. We let people know Amen. who God is and what he's done. Let me close with this on my part. One of my favorite passages of scripture is Jeremiah 9, 23 through 24. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, let not the mighty man glory in his might, nor let the rich man glory in his riches, but let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth, for in these I delight, says the Lord. So my encouragement to our friends who are listening today is, look, know your God. We pursue so many things in life that are trivial and vain. But there is nothing greater than disciplining yourself for the purpose of godliness and knowing who your God is. Because when you know him, it's then that you can truly make him known. Mm. Yeah, I'd say if in closing, um, one of the greatest ways to know God is to obey him. And uh, Christ died on the cross. This world might be reached with the gospel. So if you want a rich uh, relationship with your creator, uh, take the gospel to every creature. Live Live for what Christ did on the cross to take this world. Uh, the, the message that Jesus Christ has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Mm. Amen. You know, one of the things I love saying when I'm talking to our partners is that uh, having been working here for about two and a half years, that we really do have a, 
a high view of God and a low view of, our, of ourselves. Uh, and I love that that comes out in our conversation now. And, and when you guys are out there um, proclaiming the gospel to individuals, it's so evident that that's there. Um, and so before I wrap us up, I just wanted to mention one attribute that we didn't get to is, is the holiness of God. And I would love for um, our friends to walk away as seeing God as holy. And often holiness is um, a flat view of what holiness means is, is separate or moral. Um, and certainly I think more, more or I should say a holy God is a part of that. Uh, yet when you read things like Isaiah 6, separate and moral doesn't do holiness justice. So you'll see, you know, it's like in Isaiah 6, it's as if uh, the angels are saying separate, separate, separate is the Lord God Almighty. That, that doesn't make sense, you know, or morals, morals, morals is the Lord God Almighty. That, that just doesn't seem sure. to make sense. Uh, D.A. Carson talks about the holiness of God as having concentric circles. And at the middle of that, holy is almost an adjective for God and God alone. In a way, holy is incommunicable. Um, so that when you see the angels, they're saying, holy, holy, holy. Ultimately, they're saying, God is holy. God is God. Um, so that the highest order of angels are covering their eyes with their wings and crying, you are God, you are God, you are God, holy, holy, holy for all of eternity. Mm -hmm. And uh, my prayer is that when we go out and proclaim the gospel, that we would do so in that same vein, crying out, God is holy, God is God. Uh, so again, thank you guys um, for your contributions to this conversation. Uh, this is what is the gospel and who is God. Our next episode, if you will, will be titled "Who is Man." We will be exploring Imago Dei in the fall, and that should be uh, keeping keep a lookout in your mailboxes. That'll be coming in about thirty to forty five days after this lands. So thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for all you do and partnering alongside of us. And uh, we hope this has been a blessing to you. <laughs>